Let's pray together. Our Father, as we approach your holy word this morning, Lord, we realize that these events, although they were from thousands of years ago, are directly applicable to us. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would impress these truths into our hearts this morning and that you would help us to see even, even in ourselves the same sin that, that took place at Babel. Lord, help us to see, Lord, though the consequences of that sin and, and yet the hope that we have in the one Jesus Christ who will bring unity between us and you and between all the peoples of the earth who know and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask if you could please stand as we read our passage of Scripture for this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 11. And I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter, um, but just focusing in the sermon on verses uh, 1 to 9. And I want you to take note um, that this, this Toledot or this, uh, this section of, of um, Genesis is going to end at verse 26. And then it's going to continue on in, in, in verses 27. So this, this first section is a continuation of the generations of the sons of Noah that we talk, started talking about in Genesis chapter 10. And, and that section will continue all the way down to the end of uh, verse 26. But I'm going to read all of chapter 11 to, to set the context for you. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and let us burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had, made, had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building that city. And therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem, after he fathered Arpachshad, lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. When Arpachshad had lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sirig. And Sirig Sorry, and Reu lived after he fathered Sirig uh, 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sirig lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sirig lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. 
And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The neighbor of Abram's wife was Sarai, the daughter of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and he died, and Terah died in Haran. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Man is a proud and ignorant creature. On the day of the launch of the Titanic, an employee of the White Star Line is said to have boasted not even God himself could sink this ship. And history has proved the lie to that statement. That ship, the Titanic, went to the bottom of the ocean on April 15th, 1912, ending the lives of 1,503 people. We live in an age where human knowledge is advancing at a rate that is unprecedented, at least in modern history. Technology, medicine, communication, transportation, so many innovations and so many inventions have improved our comfort and some would say our quality of life. But many of the advances that have taken place recently are actually negative. Weaponry, genetically modified food, genetically modified people. Well, before the narrative of, of Genesis and for the Old Testament, then for that matter, turns to focus on Abraham and his progeny, Israel, the seed of promise, takes one last sweeping look at the nations of the earth. In Genesis 10, we, we saw that, that the nations of the earth are, are there paraded before us, those 70 countries that are, are, are nations that are representative of all of the peoples of the earth. These are the offspring of the three branches of Noah's family tree, Shem and Ham and Japheth. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, Moses is going to begin a new Toledot, moving away from, from the rest of the world to focus more narrowly on that one particular line, the generations of Shem, and then focusing into to Abram, who's the father of the people of Israel. But here in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, that the passage is before us, Moses takes one last look at the nations. It's a story of, of unbounded corporate human enterprise. It's a story of rebellion and of God's response to that rebellion. So before Genesis turns to look at, at Israel, more specifically, we have this one final story to look at. The incident at Babel. It's a climax of the efforts of the, the, of the nations as they, they sought to work together in opposition to God. It's a sad story of man's futile attempt at rebellion against God. And it's, it's always the case that rebellion does not, does not end well for the rebels. 
The passage is neatly divided into two sections. In verses 1 to 4, we'll see man's rebellion. And under that, we'll see man's perspective, man's plan, and man's purposes. Then in verses 5 to 9, we'll see God's response. And so we'll see God's perspective, God's plan, and God's purposes. So first of all, let's look at verses 1 to 4, man's rebellion. The passage begins, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now we've already seen the result of of what's about to happen here in Genesis 10. Genesis 11 verses 1 to 9 takes place prior to the genealogy of chapter 10. As I explained, the reason for that, as we talked about last week, is that the placement of the passages is thematic. It's not chronological. So first, what Moses wanted to do was to emphasize the the covenant blessing of, of multiplication of the peoples of the earth before focusing on the negative reason for their separation. And now, by, by, playing the incident of, uh, by placing the incident of the Tower of Babel just prior to the introduction of, of Abram, Moses is demonstrating that mankind is just as sinful now as he was before the flood. But instead of sending a, sending a flood to destroy the world, God is going to send consequences. But we'll see that these consequences are actually, in a sense, merciful. And we're going to see that... that that through this, that God is going to bring about the solution to man's sinfulness, that the solution is coming. So the thematic sequel to the table of nations here at the Tower of Babel explains why the nations speak different languages in spite of the fact that they come from one human family. Now the point here isn't just that the human race had a common language, but that they were unified by their common language. Well, now we see in verse 2 that, that they were not only unified by a common language, but they were unified in a common place. And as people migrated from the east, they found in the plain of Shinar, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And so in this we begin to see man's perspective. These, these men saw the plain, the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Well, well what's wrong with, with settling in that land? What's wrong with, with going to this land of Shinar and, and settling there? This, this land is, is in Mesopotamia, which, which means, it's, it means between two rivers, between the, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's, it's not that far from, from modern Baghdad. And it was, at this time, it was a very fertile region. There between those, those two rivers, there was lots of water, and it really made sense, maybe, to, to settle there. So, so what could be wrong with that? Well, look back at Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he repeated it in verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply and team on the earth and multiply in it. Well, this is really a reiteration of the, of the command and the blessing that God had given mankind back in Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So by settling here, by by coming together and settling here in the plain of Shinar, mankind is showing his rebellion against God. God had told them to go out and to fill the earth, but they said no. 
from their perspective, this place in the, the land of Shinar was a good place to settle. Now, notice here that chapter 11 begins and ends with people migrating from somewhere to somewhere else. But with this group, the settlers of the land of Shinar, they were rebelling. This is contrasted with Abraham at the end of the, of the chapter who settled in the land of Canaan in obedience to God and was promised great blessing. Now again, the, the land of, of, of Shinar is significant. We've already seen reference to Shinar in 10.10. Nimrod, the, the mighty man as he's called in the ESV or the, the mighty warrior from the NIV was behind it. Again, it refers to, to Mesopotamia. And the, the chief city of, of that region is Babylon. Babylon. And Babylon, throughout the Bible, increasingly came to represent immorality and idolatry and all forms of, of sin. Babylon e epitomized Gentile pride and wickedness. But Babylon is, is contrasted with, with Jerusalem. Babylon is, is a type that, that points to rebellion against God, just as Jerusalem is a type that points to obedience and worship of God. And so this represents, the, these two cities represent really a, a focal point in the war between the two seeds that, that we saw back in, the, in the, first, the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, that there would be war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that the seed of the, of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but the seed of the serpent would bruise his heel. And so these two cities are at war, the city of God and the city of man, as, as uh, Augustine speaks of them in his book, The City of God. So Babylon represents wickedness. And in, in Psalm 137, verse 1, the, the psalm says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem. These are the people of Israel taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar into, into Babylon, lamenting over, over their captivity in this pagan nation. And again, Augustine, in a sermon on this passage, it was preached early in the fifth century, said, but dearly beloved, reflect on the waters of Babylon. The waters of Babylon are all those things which are loved here below and are transient. And Augustine then goes on to talk about, about various trades and agriculture and the military, discussing how the, the, per, the pursuit of these things as an end unto themselves are, are Babylonian by nature. So the message here is that, that from man's perspective, Man has his own perspective and his self-will, and that leads to all forms of wickedness. So we don't just think of, of Babylonianism as, as being outward forms of wickedness, but, but all forms of wickedness are, are Babylonian in their nature. Even those, those things that, that you live for in your life that, that are apart from God, where God doesn't really factor into your thinking. We all have a perspective, either a worldly perspective perspective or a Babylonian perspective or we have a godly perspective. And if we aren't aiming to see things from God's perspective, woe is us. If we're, if we're taking our cues from, from the world or, or from our own fleshly thinking, we will never see clearly. Who do you think has a better perspective of the Grand Canyon? 
an ant that is sitting at the bottom of the canyon or somebody in a helicopter that is flying over the rim of the canyon. How much more so ought we look to God and to his word for his perspective on our circumstances? Where do you find God's perspective? Again, you find them in his word. And as you go to wise Christians who are seeking to order their lives according to his word and seeking counsel from them, I wonder what would have happened to those, those Babel builders if they had instead sought God asking, Lord, where do you think we should live? The decisions that we make, whether they're, they're, they're seemingly small decisions or whether they're, they're big decisions, they all need to come under the, the rule and reign of God in our lives as we, by his grace, order our steps according to his word. So from their human perspective, the, these Babel builders devised their own plans. So let's consider now man's plan in, in verse three to the first part of verse four. They'd already set themselves on a rebellious course, so what comes next really is, is of no surprise. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. D despite what God had told them to do, they liked it there in the plains of Shinar. And so there they planned their city. These were the first of the, of the urban planners. And they, they began then to, to plan the first skyscraper. They said that, well, let us, let it, we didn't have, they didn't have bricks or they didn't have, have the stone that was used in, in most construction in those days. So they, they made bricks, they improvised, and they used, they used bitumen, tar, in order to, to stick the bricks together. It's interesting that, that that region is still associated with its oil deposits. With those bricks, they, they built their city and began to build their tower. And from their perspective, it was a good idea. Their plan made sense, but God was not in their plans. The tower of which they were speaking, it was called a ziggurat. Now, ziggurats were common throughout Mesopotamia. There were multi-level buildings with a square base and then on top of that square base there was a smaller, another square base and then another base, another square, sorry, a square level on top of that and up and up and up they would go. The biggest known um, ziggurat um, at the, uh, that we have records of is dated back to the 6th century BC from the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar. It's called Etamanaki, a ziggurat of Babylon. Etamanaki, ziggurat, Bebibli, sounds like I'm talking pigeon again, but it means ziggurat of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I made it, the wonder of the people of the world. I raised its top to heaven, made doors for the gates, and I covered it with bitumen and bricks. That sound familiar? It, it was a massive building, 91 meters tall and 91 meters at its base. This was as high as a 30-story building built in the 6th century BC. And at the top of the tower was a temple for the pagan god Marduk. Now, Etamananke was not the same tower as the Tower of Babel. Etamananke came much later. But here we get a very clear sense of what these towers were for. We see it also in the Akkadian, uh, the Akkadian Enuma Elish describes the Tower of Babel, which it calls it Esagalia. And when, when Marduk, this is, from the, this is from the Enuma Elish. When Marduk heard this, his face shone like the broad day. 
tall Babel tower. It shall be built as you desire. Bricks shall be set in molds and you shall name it Paraku, the sanctuary. The Anunnaki gods took up the tools. One whole year long, they set bricks and molds. By the second year, they had raised its head, Esagilia. It towered, the earthly temple, the symbol of infinite heaven. Inside were lodgings for Marduk and Enlil and Ea. Majestically, he took a seat in the presence of them all, where the head of the ziggurat looked down to the foot. The parallels are so clear that they, they, they are talking about the same tower, one from a, a pagan perspective, but, Revelation, but Genesis 11 speaks about it from God's perspective. In this, in this Enuma Elish, it was gods who were said to have put the bricks in molds and to have built the tower, raising its head in pride, housing the, the pagan gods Marduk and Enlil and Ea. But we know from Genesis 10 who was, who was behind it, Nimrod. Nimrod was the one who had, who had planned the city Babel. And here we're seeing the fruit of his rebellion against God. And so here we begin to see man's purposes. Look at the, the second half of, of verse 4. Here we can see that there's three purposes for the tower. First, with its top to the heavens. Well, what does this mean? Did they, did they actually think they'd be able to reach heaven by, by climbing this tower? Well, elsewhere we see in the scriptures that the, the phrase is, is simply used to describe very tall towers. It's a metaphor. So they, they probably did not literally think they could, could reach heaven by climbing this tower. But in another sense, as we've just seen, they did think that they could reach heaven via this tower. Because this tower was for pagan worship. It was to be the headquarters of, of, these, of their false religion, the worship ultimately of, of Marduk, this, this false pagan god. So the first purpose was, was with its top to the heavens. It was for worship, for worship, for false worship. The second is that they would use it to make a name for themselves. You can, you can see that there as well. Let us make a name for ourselves. They sought to build a tower so that they could become famous. It was really a monument to themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves apart from God. It was a tower of self-glorification. Ligon Duncan says that when man sets out to make a name for himself apart from God and apart from the grace of God, it is always an exercise in futility because self-glorification is always self defeating. So first of all, it was a, it was a tower for worship. Then it was a, it was a tower for, for self-glorification. And then finally, it was also a, a tower to, to cause, to build, build man, uh, hu humanistic unity, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They're really putting an exclamation mark on the sin that they had committed earlier by settling in the land of Shinar in the first place. Again, God had been clear in, in Genesis 1, 28 and 9, 1 and 9, 7 that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now they wanted unity, which isn't a bad thing, except for the fact that they wanted unity apart from God. Men do not generally work well with others, except in the rebellion against God. You can see this in the crucifixion of Jesus. When, when natural enemies, Pilate and Herod and the Pharisees, worked together to, to kill the Christ. 
We'll see this also in the final battle when the armies of the earth will gather together to conspire against the armies of the Lord. We know how that ends. These Babel builders are unified in their building project, thinking their tower will aid them in their rebellion. Friends, man has his perspective and his plans and his purposes, but unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go, and, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Psalm 127, verse 2. I wonder, what towers are you building? What activities are you engaged in that, that follow in the footsteps of the, uh, of the sin of the Babel builders? What towers are you building for worship? Are you putting your time and your effort and your thinking and your, and your resources into things that are apart from God? And, and sadly, this is sometimes even true in, in what is called Christian worship, where, where it's really just a, a, a monument of, of worship of, of a God of our own making. Where we do it in order to, to feel good about ourselves. It's not guided by God and His Word. Friends, an idol is, is anything you're willing to sin to get or sin if you don't get. And all of us have, have functional gods, things we look for for satisfaction and for, for comfort in the place of God. For honest, all of us at times build towers in rebellion against God. What towers are you building for self-glorification? John Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols. But, but do you know the number one idol that, that people worship? Themselves. The number one idol that people worship is themselves. And, and so people try to make a name for themselves. Again, apart from God. I wonder, are you trying to do this in, in your work? By, by rising in your, in your career for, for the sake of, of your own glory. Some people even do this in their families. They, they want to have, have children so that their, their children are a testament to themselves. They live vicariously through their children. And so they're, they're disappointed when their children don't reach the, the goals and desires that they had for themselves. I suppose another way to ask the question is, is really what are your goals? And how do they measure up to God's goals? We're told in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that, that we're to, to, to glorify God in, in everything we do. That all that we do is to bring glory to his name. But so often we, we easily default to building glory for our own name. I wonder, are you building towers to aid in your rebellion? Have you built structures in order to protect your sin? Maybe it's the, the complex plans that enable you to fulfill your sinful efforts. Maybe it's the, the fruit of your time and efforts and thinking and, and resources. Maybe it's, it's the things that you've done to cover your tracks, to hide your sin, the lies and strategies that you use. Maybe you've distanced yourself from other people because you are building a tower to aid in your rebellion. We need to be honest and, and realize that, that to a certain degree, at certain times, this is going to apply to each one of us. But now as we move into, into the second half of this passage in, in verse 5, 
We see God's response to man's rebellion. God has his own perspective, his own plans, and his own purposes. So first, God's perspective. After all, his perspective is the one that really matters. Verse five again marks the turning point. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, of course, God doesn't need to come down to see the tower. God is omniscient. He can see everything. There's a parallel in Genesis 18.21 as, as, as God goes, says he's going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see how wicked it is. Again, God doesn't need to go down there. He knows. This is anthropomorphic. Moses is making a point here. Consider the irony. From the human's perspective, from the ant's perspective at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, this is a huge tower. Again, we don't know how far they got in the construction, but, but from their perspective, it's a massive tower. But now think about it from God's perspective. God is infinitely higher than anything man could build, and so God has to come down, the passage is saying. He has to condescend to come to man. God is so high above anything that man can do. Gordon Wenham describes this as a brilliant and dramatic way of expressing the puniness of man's greatest achievements when set alongside the creator's omnipotence. So I guess they didn't get as close to heaven as they thought they would. God's assessment of them comes in verse six. Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is another example of a divine deliberation. We're getting an an insight, a chance to hear an intra-Trinitarian dialogue and God does not laugh at their efforts. He takes them very seriously. He is aware that this scheme, if left unchecked, what it would lead to. Now, it's not that God and his position are ever threatened by man. That God is somehow afraid that man is going to to be able to manage to, to storm the gates of heaven. The sin is parallel to that of Genesis 3. Man attempting to be like God rebels and eats the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's perspective is in parallel to what we see in, in Genesis 3, 22 and 23. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God sent him from out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he, would taken. he was taken. So, so it's, a, it's a parallel sin to the first sin, this, this rebellion, this, this trying to exalt themselves above God. We're going to see in a moment how another very strong parallel between these two passages. From God's omniscient perspective, he saw everything, not just their tower, but the motivations for their tower. He knew the thoughts of man. Lord's assessment was that the Lord knows the thoughts of man. They are but a breath, Psalm 94, 11. I'm reminded here of Belshazzar in Daniel 5, drinking wine from the holy cups that his father, had, had Nebuchadnezzar, had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and all the while praising his idols. And Belshazzar was, was reveling in his pride until the fingers of a human hand 
appeared and, and wrote the words on the wall of the palace, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Aparsin. And Daniel translates these words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Aparsin, as you are weighed in the balance and found wanting. You are weighed in the balance and found wanting. I wonder what's God's perspective of you? What is God's perspective of your life? God is omniscient. And he knows everything that you do and he knows every motivation behind what you do. He knows what you do when, when you think no one else is watching. He, he knows your heart far better than, than you do. What is God's perspective on you? Are you trying to stand in your own righteousness? In, in the good things that you have done? In your own perceived qualities or giftings or, or talents or, or things that, that, that you have achieved for yourself? If so, you are weighed in the balance and found wanting. When you think about the scales of a, of a balance, on the one side of the balance is, is, is us and, and our puny attempts, our, our futile efforts at self-righteousness or self-anything. But, but where's, what's in the other side of the balance? God and his perfect righteousness. Friends, we are all weighed in the balance and found wanting. So if you're trying to stand in your own self-righteousness, you are doomed you are doomed. Our only hope, the only hope to, to, we're, to we will all be weighed in the balance on that, on that day, on that judgment day. All of us will be weighed in the balance. But the only hope that we have is the righteousness of Christ, that Christ tips the balances in our favor as his righteousness is imputed to us as, as we believe in him by faith. That his perfect record of righteousness is credited to our account. That is the only way you will ever be weighed in the balance and not found wanting. So if, if you are in Christ, if you have the imputed righteousness of Christ, God's perspective of you is that you are like Christ. That every good deed that he's ever done is credited to your account. That's our only hope. So we've seen God's perspective and God's perspective of, of these Babel builders, but now we see in verse 7 God's plans. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This is again the divine deliberation, an intra-Trinitarian dialogue, a conversation between the members of the Trinity. Notice the plural, let us go down. Let us go down. God is saying that, that, that we are going to go down and, and see man. We're going to condescend to man. And here we see that God's plans are diametrically opposed to man's plans. Man says, let us work together against God. But God says, let us work together against man. Man says, let us make bricks God says, let us confuse their language. Man speaks together in his plans and God confuses their speech to confound their plans. 
Now, of course, God could, could just have sent an earthquake to topple the tower. But that would have only stopped them temporarily. But his solution is, is, is more long-term. His solution is, is, is going to, to really deal with, with, what, with, with not just that endeavor, but with, with any endeavor that they would do in order to, to conspire against God. I wonder, have you ever found God seemingly working against your plans? Have you ever found yourself frustrated by circumstances that keep you from doing what you want to do? Now, we need to be careful here because providence is not equal to guidance. If hurdles are being thrown up in your way, it could mean that, that God is, is hindering you from a course of action that could lead to your destruction, but it could just as easily mean that what God is doing is, is strengthening you through the trial. So we can't know for certain, but we can know for certain that obstacles are opportunities. They're opportunities to stop and reassess. They're opportunities to pray. They're, they're stop to, an opportunity to, to, to reevaluate whether our, our plans are in line with God's plans, whether they're in line with God's word. They're also an opportunity to seek counsel from wise Christians that, that God has placed in your life. So again, when it comes to the frustration of our plans, take stock, stop and reassess and, and examine what is it that God is doing in this and am I considering God in the midst of my plans? Well, finally, we need to consider God's purposes. We've seen, we've seen God's perspective, we've seen his plans, and now we see God's purposes in his plans. And I believe there's four key purposes that God has here. First of all, to keep them from being able to work together. God, God confounds their speech so that they're, they're, they're no longer able to, to, to be able to, to work together. If someone says, hand me a trowel, but he says it in, in pigeon, they're not going to understand. They're not going to be able to communicate with each other. And so the, the plans are immediately going to come to a stop. Again, we, hear, we see that the consequence is fitting the crime. I wonder if, 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 there, have been, if there have been times when, when you've seen that, that God has, has used circumstances that have, have, have really fit the crime in your life that saved you from, a, from a, going in a direction that, that would have harmed you I can, I can, and would have been disobedient to him. I can think of many, many times in my life, there's, there's things that I wanted. And through the circumstances, God said no. You know, I think one, one really clear example is, is marriage. I, I can think specifically of, of a, a woman that I really wanted to marry. And God closed the door. Now, I know that in his providence, he was closing the door to that marriage because she's married to somebody else, and now I'm married to Jane. But I can see that, that God, in, in, in his providential care of my life, was, was using the circumstances in my life to, to head me off from making a choice that would have actually been sinful. Because I, I believe now, after the fact, that there's a pretty good chance that this, that this woman that I wanted to marry wasn't even a Christian. And God gave me something far, far better than, than I ever could have, could have imagined or, or hoped or dreamed in Jane. 
So God, God works in our circumstances and, and, and keeps us from doing the things that, that we want to do that we think are good because he wants to do something else that's far, far better. That's the first, the first purpose here. But the, the second is to fulfill God's purposes. So God does what he, what he does here in confounding their language, causing the people to scatter because that was his purpose in the first place. We saw that again and again in, in chapter one of Genesis, in chapter nine, a couple of times there, that, that God wanted man to spread out through the earth. But by confounding their languages, he caused them to, to do what he had wanted them to do in the first place. And so this is a means of achieving that. Unable to communicate, the people didn't just leave off building the tower, they left the city and they spread out to the four corners of the earth. Think about what, it, what is God's ultimate purpose in your life. We read about this in the Westminster Catechism. To, to, in, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is God's ultimate purpose for you in your life. In the circumstances that God brings into your life, whatever circumstances they are, enjoyable circumstances or, or hard circumstances, God is using those circumstances to transform you and to make you more like Christ so that you would, will be better able to glorify him. He's often weaning us from the, the things of this world that, that we think we want, that we're satisfied with, with so little and so that we'll be able to enjoy him more fully as he causes us to let go of things that we shouldn't have wanted in the first place. Okay, so he, he did this to, to keep them from being able to work together, to fulfill his purposes, and he also did it to punish sin. God must punish sin. And again, the consequence fits the crime. They wanted a tower apart from God, and God kept them from completing it. They wanted a name for themselves apart from God and they are nameless throughout the story until God gives them a different name, Babel. Look at verse nine. In the Babylonian language, Babel means gate of the gods, but in Hebrew, it sounds just like the word for confusion. So they got a name, an enduring name, but it wasn't a name of honor, it was a name of shame. They wanted to settle together apart from God but again, they didn't just leave off building the tower. They left the city. They, they started off as, as the whole earth, but they ended up distributed over the whole earth. So they wanted a tower and a name and a place all apart from God, but they lost all three. Just stop for a moment and, and examine yourself. Are you walking in unrepentant sin? Are there things in your life that you know are wrong, but you're running headlong after them like those Babel builders? What do you have to lose by pursuing these things? Far more than a, than a tower and a, and a place and a name. Think about what we read in, um, in, in Matthew that is better to, to or whoso would ever, um, 16.26, what will profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall I, a man give in return for his soul? Those things 
that you are pursuing apart from Christ, if you are apart from Christ, will lead to your downfall. Because of them, you will lose your soul. And finally, this might seem surprising in the context, but but the last purpose that God has here in, in setting this consequence is to have mercy. It's to have mercy. Because in doing this, God was diverting them from a course that would lead to their destruction. As I mentioned earlier, this, this passage parallels Genesis 3. And just as, as in Genesis 3, God had mercy on man by not allowing him to have access to the tree of life. He, he would not allow man to live forever in an ever-increasing state of rebellion and the decay of sin. But now he has mercy in not allowing man to work together in a rebellion that would necessitate another global judgment. God does not want to have to wipe man out prematurely. He has promised that he would not send another flood. And so by, by confusing the language and dispersing the people, he's stopping this, this form of rebellion. He's keeping them from from achieving things that that would lead to their immediate destruction. I think we need to have this understanding of of the consequences that that God brings in our life for our sin as well. If you're here as a Christian this morning, then when we read in in Hebrews 11.7 that it is for discipline you have to endure, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about, yeah, it's not fun. It's not pleasant to be, to be disciplined, but it's God's love. When, when God disciplines us for, for our sin, like a loving father, he is actually a, a form, of, it's a form of mercy to keep us from destroying ourselves. But I think also for, for many people, the, the consequences of their sin are meant to be a wake-up call. For unbelievers, the the consequences of sin can be the very things that God uses as a means of grace to cause them to wake up to the fact that they are living in rebellion against God. I think about the consequences in my my own life prior to to becoming saved. They're, They're horrific things. Living terror. Now maybe God won't have to take you as low as he took me, but but if God is bringing consequences into your life, you had better wake up. Do not harden yourself against God's discipline. So again, God's God's purposes are are to keep man from working together, to fulfill his purposes, to punish, punish sin, and to have mercy. But as Kenneth Matthews says, this as a mockery, this story lampoons the pride of human autonomy, which sought after the power of the divine. This narrative sarcasm sets Gentile pomposity in its paltry place. When the New York office of the White Star Line was informed that the Titanic was in trouble, the president of the shipping line, P.S. Franklin, announced, we place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe the boat is unsinkable. By the time Franklin spoke those words, the Titanic was already at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. What are you placing your confidence in? Are you placing your confidence in yourself, 
in your righteousness, in, in, in the things that you can achieve for your greater glory? Are you like these, Bal- these Babel builders? Post-flood man is just as sinful as pre-flood man. The flood could not wipe sin from the hearts of man, but by placing this narrative of the Tower of Babel here, this incident just prior to introducing Abram, we're seeing hope. We're seeing that God is going to provide a, a plan. We'll, we'll get into this next week. God is providing a, a way, a solution to the problem of man's sin. Abram too dwelt in Babylon. Ur of the Chaldees was in the kingdom of Babylon, not far from the city of Babylon, not far from the exact place where these events happened. Babylon will fall. Revelation 18.2 declares, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. God called Abram out of a pagan culture, but God in his divine initiative and his divine plan, instead of again flooding the world, God is going to make a covenant with Abraham as a powerful and and eternal solution to that sinfulness. And in Christ, we see the embodiment of that solution, the new covenant in his blood. And we look ahead in our Bibles to to, to the events after the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see already, we see the effects of, we see the the effects of Babel, the curse of Babel being overturned. Just turn with me, if you will, in your your Bible for a moment to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. Here we see the day of Pentecost. As we see in, we see these, these people in, uh, in verse five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. That This multitude had come together and they heard, they heard from verse four, they heard these men who were filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, so these, these assembled Jews who were there in Jerusalem, these people from, from all of these nations were, were astonished. They, they heard these men praising God in their own language. This, this was not gobbledygook. This was an actual language that they heard people speaking. They understood and they praised God, and, and many of these, these men and women were added to the church on that day. So there in Acts 2, we see a beginning of the reversal of the curse at Babel. But as I mentioned last week, we, we see the, the final reversal in, in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, they were gathered, they will be gathered together there on that day in that one place with one voice praising one person, Jesus Christ, the ultimate and final reversal of Babel. And so we today, 
as people who have been called out of Babylon, been called into the heavenly city, we have an opportunity, we have the privilege of coming together as people from from different cultures and to, to praise God together. To be a foretaste of that day when we'll all gather together from from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at your omnipotence. Lord, at your omniscience, that you are infinitely above and infinitely more powerful than than the puny efforts of man. Yet, Lord, you condescend to come to men. And Lord God, you came, took on flesh, and dwelt among a sinful people. Lord Jesus, you lived the sinless life that we could never live. You died the, the sinner's death that we deserved to die. Jesus, we know that you rose on the third day victorious over death, over hell, over Satan, over our own sin. You've raised us to new life in Christ. So Lord, I pray that as your people, Lord, we would see this great privilege we have of praising you now, of praising you with with people that are are in some cases very different from ourselves, but but together are, are, are praising your holy name. Lord, I pray that this church would be filled with people from, from all different cultures as we, we consider the way that they reflect so often on so many nations that are coming into the city. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a faithful witness of the glories of Christ in this city and, and Lord, that, that many nations would come and assemble here so as to praise your name together as you cause the unity we have in Christ to descend, to, to to transcend all of the the differences that we have on a human level as we who have been united with you are then united with the people of God. We pray this in the most majestic and beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.